Last week, we got this WhatsApp memo from inside the world's largest refugee camp. During the violence in August 2017, my parents and I fled Bangladesh, escaping the killing in Myanmar. Since then, we have been living in refugee camp Kosas Bazar, Bangladesh. Mayu Ali is Rohingya, a member of Myanmar's Muslim minority group. He told us his family are among one million refugees now living in a camp in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh. Conditions in the camp are bad, but they're about to get worse. Earlier this month, Bangladesh ordered telecommunication companies to shut down mobile phone services to the people who live in the camps. Losing communication is losing touch with our relative and friend inside Myanmar. We have no information of what is going on in the world. Over a spotty connection and with the communication blackout looming, he told us how he's worried that his suffering and the suffering of his people will be silenced. At that time, we cannot send our voice to the Western world without the internet connection. Without a phone, I will lose touch with the world. I will lose everything in my life. I will lose with the sources for my survival. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The Rohingya have faced decades of persecution, statelessness, and violence in Rakhine State, Myanmar. And in order to understand the impact of the ban, you need to understand what the Rohingya have been through and what they're still going through. So I sat down with Al Jazeera's Mohammed Jamjoum, Anyone who follows you on social media knows that your feed is often dominated with Rohingya stories, Rohingya headlines. You've been covering it a lot. How often do you think about it? Every day. Malika, I uh, have covered issues tied to displacement and migration and refugees for over a decade. Many stories that I have covered have impacted me greatly, but none have impacted me as much as the Rohingya crisis. It's something that even if I wanted to forget, uh, which I don't, uh, I would not be able to. Before we keep going with Mohammed, I just want to mention that some of the stories he's sharing involve extreme violence and sexual assault. So listener discretion is advised. So I want to go back in history a little bit. The Rohingya come from Rakhine State, just across the border from Bangladesh in Myanmar. Who are they? Well, they're considered one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. Um, They trace their origins in that region to the 15th century. Um, That's when thousands of Muslims settled uh, in what was then called Arakan Kingdom. Well, in the early 20th century, um, you know, Rakhine was governed by colonial rule. It was part of British India successive governments in Burma, because Myanmar was called Burma at that time, they have refuted the Rohingya's claims and they've denied the Rohingya any kind of recognition as one of Myanmar's official 135 ethnic groups. So you have Myanmar, they consider the Rohingya to be illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, uh, even though the Rohingya trace their roots in Myanmar back centuries. But the central government in Myanmar, which was in Burma, and the ethnic Buddhist groups, the the dominant ethnic Buddhist group in the area, they never recognized that, and they still don't. So 
the Rohingya have been marginalized for decades. In 1982, you had a citizenship law that was passed, which further alienated them, uh, further marginalized them, stripping them again of, of citizenship. And since then, the situation has just gotten progressively worse. So the Rohingya fled persecution three times, the first in the 70s, then in the 90s, and again in August of 2017. What was going on then? That's when clashes broke out in Rakhine State. So there's this militant group known as the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, also the initials ARSA. And they had claimed responsibility for these attacks on police and army posts. So the government in Myanmar declared uh, ARSA a terrorist organization. And that's when you see this brutal crackdown, this campaign launched by Myanmar's military in Rakhine State. Gunshots pepper the air at the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh. Witnesses say it's the sound of Rohingya civilians being fired upon by Myanmar's military. Young women were raped, even children were killed in front of their mothers. Children were slaughtered. My son was killed and so was my husband. Accused is the Myanmar military and Buddhist nationalist mobs of systematically and indiscriminately raising Rohingya Muslim villages. And that's when you start seeing hundreds of thousands of Rohingya fleeing for their lives across the border because the situation was just far too violent for them to be able to stay in Myanmar. And this was a big story, of course. We saw these images of families walking out of Myanmar, carrying just a few possessions, these looks of horror on their faces. People expected Myanmar's leader to do something about it. Aung San Suu Kyi is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but she didn't. That's when you started reporting on this, your first of four trips to the camps. What was that like? What did you see? I remember that when we first arrived to the Kutupalong camp in Cox's Bazaar, which is just across the border from Myanmar, um, it was a scene unlike anything that, that I've witnessed. And I, I've been to many displacement and, and, and refugee camps all over the world. But this was the trauma, the pain, the suffering that was on display was, was on a scale that I had never encountered before that, that first day that we got there. It was, it was extremely overwhelming. Uh, on the one hand, you had just the elements. Um, that alone was overwhelming. It was blazingly hot and, and blazingly humid. I mean, you really felt battered by the weather. And you can imagine how the Rohingya, who many of them had walked for days to try to cross the border to escape with their lives, they were exhausted. The people you see behind me here, they're lining up for aid distribution. To give you some idea of the scale of this crisis, this encampment that we're in today, it didn't exist about three weeks ago. Now, there's at least 20,000 Rohingya refugees who live here. There was also just, I'm sad to say, but um, the stench of these makeshift latrines that had been overflowing. And the, the longer we were there, the more we saw just how, you know, contaminated the water was. But more than that was what I saw when it came to the children. Because usually when you go 
to refugee camps, or at least this has been my experience. When you go to refugee camps, no matter the amount of hardship, typically the children, because they're children, are playing. The children, because they're so resilient, they're usually, you know, engaged in some form of play. And that is not what I saw. I saw children that were quiet, saw children that... <sighs> Sorry. You could just see on their faces that they had witnessed more than any human being ever should. And that shocked me because I've never seen that before with refugee children. And um, boy, it hit me. Boy, did I know right away that I was going to be hearing some horrific descriptions. That first trip, we interviewed a, a woman named um, Rajuma Begum, and she was from the village of Tulatoli. And uh, in August, <clears throat> When her village had come under attack, she had been holding her um, her baby. The military had uh, pushed her down, and and, uh, and they picked up her child, and they threw her child into a fire pit. Um, then she was gang raped. Many people in Rajuma's family had been killed that day, including her mother. When she was telling us about this, um, she she started crying and she started screaming out for her mother. <laughs> and then she said that she felt like she was burning on the inside. We were sitting in this tent this hut made of bamboo and made of tarpaulin. And I just remember thinking in that moment that, it, I, well, I didn't know what to do or what to say. Obviously, what, what would you say in a situation like that? But she had been through so much. She was now having to live in a structure that offered no shelter. So this is somebody who needs as much support as anybody I've met, ever met in my life. And she wasn't getting counseling, and her husband was saying that she needed it, and she needed more medical care. And even the place where she was living, after having suffered such atrocities, it, it was so hot in that hut. And it was just vulnerability piled on vulnerability, piled on vulnerability, and trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma. And that's what we encountered. And, and I, I've interviewed, you know, hundreds of Rohingya refugees, and I've heard stories that are similar. I, I can't understand how the world can look away. I can't understand how the international community continues to largely ignore the plight of the Rohingya. That is heavy, to say the least, understatement there. Thank you for reliving that for us. So we've said that the Rohingya are not recognized by Myanmar, and they're fleeing atrocities. And then they get to Bangladesh, and Bangladesh doesn't claim them as citizens. So they're left to sit there, live there for generations. What does that mean for them? Do they have identity cards? Where do they get to call home? Well, they're stateless, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. I mean, there have been these repatriation schemes that have come up a few times in the past couple of years, agreements that are 
drawn up uh, between the governments of Bangladesh and Myanmar and without consulting the Rohingya. Myanmar has continued to say that they will welcome Rohingya refugees back, but there's no guarantee that they would ever get citizenship, that anything would change. And in fact, there is a satellite imagery that shows that many of the uh, areas that the Rohingya lived in in Rakhine State have been have been raised and structures have been have been placed there. When you speak to the Rohingya, they tell you that they they would love to be able to go home. If we were given citizenship in Myanmar, then there would be no need to take us back there. We would go back on our own. But how can they go home when there's nothing to guarantee their safety? When they won't have freedom of movement? When they won't even have citizenship? They asked if we want to go back to Burma. I said no. They asked me why. I told them that our houses were burnt, our family members were raped and killed. This is why we suffered so much and came here. How can we go back without knowing that we will be safe? And they are stateless in Bangladesh as well, and and that's a problem for them too, because there is a sense now that there are forces or political forces within Bangladesh that are tiring of the crisis. The situation is getting more tense, and many, 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 many people that I speak to in Bangladesh, you know, are very supportive of the plight of the Rohingya and would like to help them. But, you know, it's, it's somewhat polarized in the country when it comes to the issue. And so there's a large segment of the population that's very supportive and wants to help them, and there's a large segment of the population that um, would like to see them go back to Myanmar. You know, there have been reports emerging in Bangladeshi media in the past month that there are authorities there that have said that they may try to make conditions in camps, you know, worse so that the Rohingya would want to leave voluntarily. So the latest that we're hearing is that the Bangladeshi government ordered telecom companies to stop selling SIM cards. And it's not the first time they've tried to block communication for Rohingya refugees. But why are they pushing this ban now? And and why are they being so public about it? It looks like There are officials in Bangladesh who are trying to send a message that Bangladesh is essentially running out of patience when it comes to the Rohingya. This matter when it comes to internet access and phone access, yeah, it's a real problem. I mean, when you think about how instrumental phones have been for the Rohingya, um, let's take it back to 2017. I mean, one of the ways that the media has even been able to report on what happened in Rakhine State was because there were, you know, brave Rohingya refugees who were trying to document what was going on in Rakhine State with their cell phones. And that's been a primary way that uh, evidence has made its way out on the atrocities that were committed in Rakhine State. So the phones are very important for the Rohingya refugees that I speak with, you know, not just as a way of communicating with themselves and with the outside world, but also because they would like to see at some point a, a case brought in the International Criminal Court. And they believe that this evidence that they've collected, you know, that might be used in that kind of a forum someday. The Rohingya have lost so much, just based on what you've been telling us and the scenes that we've seen, you know, family members, children, they've watched their villages burn. Losing communications seems like it could be so minor in, in comparison to all of that. But what do you think this means just kind of generally speaking, for the future of the Rohingya in Bangladesh? It's, re- it's really terrifying for them because there is an emerging activism amongst Rohingya refugees. There are groups that have formed that are trying to demand more from the international community to help them. 
and trying to speak up for their rights and trying to insist that uh, the people who are responsible for these atrocities committed against them, that they face justice someday. And so they they feel now that this is a, essentially a way that Bangladesh might be trying to force them to, to leave. That, coupled with the news that Bangladesh uh, is still going to try to relocate potentially several hundred thousand Rohingya refugees to this island called Basanchar off the coast of Bangladesh, they're really scared. They don't know what Bangladesh will do. And, and Bangladesh has insisted repeatedly that they would never force anybody to go back to Myanmar. Um, and whenever they've come up with lists of names of people who might be repatriated, the UN has always vetted those names, have always interviewed those people, and the people have always said, we don't want to go back. And now there's even more uncertainty. Every day they wonder, is this the day that they might perhaps be forced to go back to the country that they barely escaped with their lives from? Is this the day that they might have to go to this island off the coast of Bangladesh and then not know if they'll ever be able to leave that island again? These are, these are terrifying thoughts for anybody who's had the kind of experience that Rohingya refugees have had. Mohammed says he's already hearing that there have been service slowdowns, even phone seizures. My friends in the camps, the ones who I get, keep in touch with, I mean, they're, they're really afraid. I mean, I've heard from many of them that in the last week that there have been officials that are going into the camps and they're actually snatching phones out of the hands of refugees. So many of the refugees I'm speaking with, they don't take their phones with them anymore. They hide them in their huts. And just in the past few days, I've heard that Internet shutdown has been activated in at least parts of the encampments. Right now, there are nearly 600,000 Rohingya still inside Myanmar at risk of persecution, living in a country accused of systematic ethnic cleansing. The United Nations Human Rights Council published a report this week citing that they have found genocidal acts in Myanmar's 2017 military crackdown. But... Myanmar's government has denied committing any crime of persecution, and they've called the UN report a series of false allegations. For Rohingya refugees like Mayu in Bangladesh, who we heard from at the start of this episode, there's no guarantee of an end to the violence and a safe return home. For now, his phone is still working. We have fled Bangladesh many times. We have returned Myanmar many times. This time, it should be the last repatriation ever. All we want is to restore our citizenship and national right in Myanmar. Mayu told us he wanted to be a teacher in Myanmar. But he says as a Rohingya, that wasn't possible. In 2010, my Buddhist friend and I submitted application for a school teacher. The result was announced. He was selected and I was rejected because I was born to Rohingya parents. Instead of teaching, he used poetry and writing to communicate the feeling of statelessness that he's felt his entire life. And in publishing his new book, Exodus, he fulfilled a new dream. I write for my people. Writing is my identity. It is my existence. In a state of gun, I hold pen between my fingers. I believe that literature is a good tool to fight against ignorance and injustice in the world. 
And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Dina Kispe with Ney Alvarez, Morgan Waters, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilbe, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Luke Rohr was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Mohamed Jamjoum, Mayu Ali, Zani, and Ney San Lewen. We'll be back next week.